the touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Hey, everybody. This is Ourgasm. Uh, this is the podcast where we talk about decolonizing sexuality and gender. I am Lindsay G. I use she, her, and hers pronouns, and I'm also pretty cool with they, them, and theirs pronouns. And I am Lenny Peppers. I use she, her, and hers pronouns. And on this episode of Our Gasm, we are going to talk about mowage. I absolutely don't think that I can say the word in an official context without saying it like, like the guy on the Princess Bride. So I apologize yeah. anyone who's younger than me and doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. And I apologize to everyone who does know what I'm talking about because it's such an obvious joke, but it's just, I can't, I can't help it. It's my programming. So Mowage is what brings us here together today. And I also <laughs> apologize for anyone that I just offended by doing a really bad speech impediment. but. It already happened, and I can't change it. <laughs> so here we are. Um, so, I don't know. Marriage is kind of like the whole thing of uh, more or less the patriarchy and the colonization of our romantic and erotic relationships, you know, as a species. I've been through it twice, and I have to say that there are, like, days that I go through where I'm like incredibly angry that we have been tricked into believing like in the concept and practice of normative middle-class nuclear family <laughs> including heteronormative coupledom as like the correct way to love mm -hmm. and now it's the default for like what love is supposed to be and the thing that makes me so angry about that is that, like, the actual, like, act of marriage itself really doesn't have anything to do with love or romance or any of that. I feel like I was gaslit into getting married <laughs> the first time. Like, my entire life, like, I was told that that's what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And then I did, and it was awful. And oh, yeah. uh, then I did it again, and it was okay. So, <laughs> but I mean... <laughs> I mean, it's just, I don't know. It makes me so angry, though, that, like, that's what, even, like, growing up on a reservation, where that kind of nuclear family relationship isn't, like, true for Indigenous people and the way that we see relationships, so. Oh, man, there's so much right there. Like, I kind of just want to let you talk for a while, because I'm, like, I'm over here, like, oh, my God, yes, preach, like, <laughs> tell me more. Um, but just so that like we're on a little bit of like even footing going in, um, I guess, like talking about our personal feelings about marriage. Um, I have very similar feelings about it. I, uh, you know, I was raised in the dominant culture of America, um, which, as we have discussed, is very much uh, related to Disney films, which is very much tied into um you know, the Grimm Brothers and Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales was very much tied into European ideas of, you know, how people are supposed to behave with regards to sex and gender. Um, and like, I was definitely raised with this idea that for women, the finding your prince 
aka getting married is your happily ever after like that's it that's the end of your story is when you get married and that's the thing that you want to happen because it's a happy ending um but like that always just felt so incomplete to me because like you're encouraged to get married you know around the time you're like 20 i guess pretty average in like the popular culture the way that it's displayed especially like in disney movies and like you're just then what <laughs> like that there's not an ending that's a beginning um but it's funny because like i think when i was a kid i don't ever remember like fantasizing about my own marriage like i never got swept away by thoughts of like oh what's my wedding dress gonna look like or anything like that i had like no personal stake in it but at the same time, I understood that weddings were, like, a big deal. And therefore, like, I would always marry, like, my toys. Or, like, if I was bored at dinner and I didn't feel like eating, I would, like, marry my fork and my spoon. Like, so I was always performing weddings. But I never put myself into the role of one of the one of the items getting married. Um, which yeah. I think probably is also a insight into my queerness like I had no concept um that you know people of the same gender could possibly be in a relationship like that um maybe if I had I would have seen myself more in a wedding situation I don't know but it never felt personal to me and I think that like continuing on in my life I've just never I've never put much value on the idea of being married as opposed to not being married. It never has felt like a priority to me personally, but I definitely have received all the same messaging that says that you're supposed to be married. That's how you be happy. Um, yeah. And I'm also really angry about that because I, I myself have never been married, but I have seen many people that I know and love, you know, get married because that's what you do and right. live to regret it. And yeah. yeah, like you said, it really, it like stifles people. It shoves people into this box that they may not actually want to be in, but it's just seen as like the next step. So you just do it. And especially for women, it's like, this is your day. This is your most specialist moment of your entire life that you've right. worked so hard for. And then it's over and like, okay. Now right. What? In fact, some women cling to that so hard uh, because as you said, it is like, an ending like for mm -hmm. your childhood for your life as an independent person for like your maidenhood yeah, uh, <laughs> maidenhood. Disney, yeah. Uh, and so like women cling to this like so hard that we they they become bridezillas and there's an entire show devoted to this yeah where they're like this is my day and ultimately treat like their entire like family and wedding party and friends and people that they love like crap for the sake of like going through this ceremony which like I said ultimately isn't even really tied to romance or love. I had actually taken some history classes that actually spent time on uh, what we know as the American dream the the idea of marriage is very deeply woven with what we call the American dream and yeah. so that ultimately like started 
really getting like pounded into the fabric of our country, the soul of America uh, <laughs> in just post World War II, America had taken out, had created like this huge debt paying for World War II. Okay. And they, it was really, really essential to get America back on track. And they did this by creating like whole neighborhoods of houses oh. uh, for people to come and live in like these, uh, like basically cookie cutter neighborhoods started springing up all over America. And if you wanted to be a part of the American dream, this is where you were supposed to go. Uh, so like the nuclear family structure uh, in post-war America consisted of a breadwinner male Mm-hmm. And his wife, who did all of the household chores and looked after the children. Yeah. And then, of course, the children. Usually one boy, one girl, one dog. You know? Yes. <laughs> uh, families ate meals. They went to outings together. And they lived in these neighborhoods, which were set up to be kind of like these sociable neighborhoods where you're able to go into your front yard and be a part of, like, the neighborhood community mm-hmm. and still be able to go into your backyard and be a part of, like, your nuclear family right. community. The houses were literally built to do this. And then we start seeing in, like, post-war mm-hmm. media, uh, in magazines, in books, in um, television, and in film, uh, we start seeing, like, these ideas being pushed onto Americans as, like, what you're supposed to do next. And so my expertise is in the study of films and television. And from this time frame, we actually, and, and looking into it, we actually see America point to the push of American culture towards these values. And there's a specific reason for this. And it came down to what everything in the U.S. comes down to. And that's like the bottom line. Right. Yeah. So marriage promoted economic advancement and social order. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which meant that people were pushed to get married younger, like marry your high school sweetheart. Like that's a part of like the American dream to have children. Divorces became taboo. That's when like children became like emotional rather than economic assets for the very first time in American history. And like as a whole and like, close with their parents and the center of the family. So like the father and the mother were like supposed to like have children and then like raise them to go to school and then to also sustain this like nuclear family system. Okay. And so because of this parents study child development, you start seeing like a lot of like child development magazines coming through, child development books coming through around this time. And they worked to socialize their children so that they would become successful adults. Right. And then also at this time, for the very first time in American history is when in in like colonial American history, (laughs) childhood became a distinct period of life. Right. Um, Yeah. Which is crazy to me because from my understanding, childhood was a distinct period of life for Native Americans for a very, very long, long time until this idea started being pushed on us and so the goal of this like I said was the American dream or security the American dream is security and security for America ultimately means the bottom line yeah it means having money 
Um, it's also interesting to note, like you're talking about post-war America sort of like setting up all of these concepts and making them mainstream for the first time. And I mean, that period was directly before the period where we saw the rise of um, being a teenager as a thing, like as yeah. its own distinct life period, um, meaning that basically like the kids who were born at the beginning of this time period then became teenagers and decided that they needed to have their own distinct life phase that they were in, you know, between childhood and adulthood. And that's when like uh, Rebel Without a Cause happened and rock right. and roll music became popular. Totally. Oh my God, I just did rock and roll music. I'm so old. <laughs> <laughs> rock, the rock and uh, the rolling music makes me nervous. We start seeing something in film and television around this same time. It's a... It, called the the teenage gaze mm-hmm. and that's where we start seeing like what the world looks like from like the teenagers eyes it's and pretty then, much twilight right that's what the teenage gaze is. <laughs> <laughs> kind of i mean think back to um the 1980s with fred savage in wonder years yeah um looking back on his like childhood and mostly like his teen years that like american like 1950s nostalgia was kind of created through like all of this different part these different kinds of media yeah yeah it's interesting too because I'm definitely thinking about like um before this time period it kind of feels like uh the nuclear family option was really only for the wealthy but that was still really mitigated by like the presence of like nurses and nannies and like sending your child away to, you know, fancy pants boarding school. And um, like, I, I well, feel like for the very wealthy in earlier time periods in America, um, childhood may have been more of a distinct life phase, but it was not really, it wasn't as closely tied to the parents. Well, emotionally I can totally see that but I I also see like the sending of children away to like I mean as a Native American like we didn't send our children away to boarding schools they were taken away from us and put into boarding schools yeah it's very different it was for the purpose of um like making them into people who could work for the upper class societies essentially And that's pretty much true for, like, people of color throughout the entire United States. Like, the neighborhoods that were built were not built for people of color. They were built Mm -hmm. for white people. They were built for upper-class people. And it was for the white or for the people of color to either work for them, um, to raise their kids. And then they also, at some point, began to be a push for white couples to start adopting uh, not only, um, you know, Black children, but Native children. Like, there was a huge yeah. push for social services to do that. Uh, but ultimately, like, that whole thing, um, like I said, has, like, this bottom line construct of, like, America needed to, like, fix itself it needed to like start paying back some debt it needed to start making some money and it so like 
they started selling this American dream. And then like, that's how marriage became a part of that dream. In order to be happy, you must be married. And so for women who like study after study after study has shown that women are not happy in marriage. Really? It's just, yeah, uh, there's so many different studies. One study found that like women were very happy at the end of their lives, very happy at the beginning of their lives, but there was definitely like a downward curve, like in the middle where they were married. And I'm reading this study out of a book called Dead Blondes and Bad Mothers by Sadie Doyle. (laughs) It says a, a 2017 study by the National Health Service found that women were unhappier than men all of their lives, especially unhappy in the prime marriage and child rearing decades of their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Wow. But that female happiness saw a sharp uptick once the women reached their mid 80s because, can you guess? Because their husbands died. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. And like divorcees like tended to be really much happier with themselves. And, but the thing is, is like men, their happiness actually has a curve that goes the other way during their marriage years. Oh, 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 can we talk about that? I have, I have theories. <laughs> yeah. So essentially like women and their suffering, whether that be like sacrifice of self or sacrifice of body is necessary to the functioning of society. Mm-hmm. It basically leads us to it leads to us teaching our youth that their happiness is not as valuable outside the nuclear family framework right. to this yeah. day. Absolutely. That like that all makes sense to me. I mean, in marriage, how much conversation has there been? How much research has there been, especially in recent years, into how although marriages are supposed to be getting more egalitarian all the time, women are still doing all of the shit work in most marriages. Oh yeah, women, totally. Women are doing the cooking and the cleaning and the wiping of the children's butts. You know, they're they're doing the shitty stuff and they're very often doing it because their husbands won't. So if like just at that very, very practical level, if we're looking at happiness quotients, like of course a man's gonna be happier when he's married. He's got this person to do everything for him. And I know I'm making sweeping generalizations here. Anybody listening, please do not fly into a rage. I know that not every marriage is like that. It is still overwhelmingly true that in most heterosexual marriages, women do almost all of the shitty work while dudes, you know, have either social lives or more involved professional lives or play video games or play, you know, football out back with the kids, like whatever the case may be. Okay, so I'm going to back you up with this uh, with studies. Yay! Okay, I'm not just shooting things off at the mouth. No, no. Actually, (laughs) a study done this year, uh, according to a report by Oxfam and the Institute for Women's Policy Research, found that women in the United States spend two hours more each day cooking, cleaning, and taking care of children and other unpaid work. Unpaid work than men two hours a day that's two hours a day hours holy crap 
So the study found that women age 15 and older spend 5.7 hours daily doing housework and looking after kids and elders, while men at the same age age range do 3.6 hours each day. Huh. I am not surprised. Yeah. And um, the thing is, is that when women move in with men, they actually have an increase in the amount of work that they do around the house the second that they move in with uh, a man (laughs) because men are like oh sock i'm gonna put a sock over here and the men (laughs) and the men actually have a decrease in the amount of work that they spend doing uh the time they spend doing unpaid work Again, like, I really, I don't want to be rude here because I know that not everybody has the situation and I don't want to be making sweeping generalizations, but um, we, like, women are raised to see themselves in the domestic care role. Like, and I know that, like, the advertising industry is trying to get better about this, et cetera, et cetera, but, like, you know, when you watch commercials and there's something being marketed, like, dish soap. You don't see men in dish soap commercials because men don't do dishes, you know, right. and and it's a, it's a self-perpetuating cycle there. You know, women see themselves as the ones who are supposed to take on these roles. That's what we see in media. That's what we are taught often by our mothers and grandmothers. And so therefore, when we enter into a relationship like that, we don't necessarily think about it. We just do it. That's what you're supposed to do. And that that just gets perpetuated you know ad nauseum but it's also part of um like a deeper pattern like you said of sacrifice of self-sacrifice because underneath the doing the dishes and taking care of the kids level there's a much deeper level of women being raised to take care of men emotionally oh yeah totally doing what we must to make sure that our men are okay um and, you know, sacrificing our own happiness for them. And that definitely, I mean, I'm sh- I can't even imagine the number of studies that reflect this. Um, but it also, like, it sucks not just for women. And I think it's important to say because men are really taught that their only deep emotional relationship is supposed to be with their wife or their significant other. And there have been a lot of studies that have come out recently. I can't cite them. I don't have them in front of me. Um, about how like adult men in America are miserable. They don't have friends. They don't have strong family relationships. They have one relationship with their one married significant other. And when you have a dynamic like that, where one person has no support network except for you, then you as the wife who have been taught your whole life that it's important for you to make the people around you happy, especially the men, you are going to be sacrificing your own mental health and happiness for the sake of keeping that man happy. Like I said, not just for the sake of keeping the man happy, but for the sake of America, like for the sake of like the country, like it is a woman's duty to the country. Lie back and think of England. (laughs) But here's the thing. Uh, I don't live in a really, I don't live in a marriage with those traditional structures yeah of like power um, yeah because you're awesome and, <laughs> and so is my husband actually because he yes. takes the kids to the doctor's appointments he's the one who cooks the meals he's the one that does the laundry you know and um he's awesome hi James. <laughs> <laughs> 
the the thing that sucks about that is that we have been so like deeply um brainwashed to think that that is not like what a real man is supposed to do wow i never really thought about how concerted an effort it was to make like i knew that it was a concerted effort to make the white suburbs a thing but i never really thought about how marriage was tied up in that as like this is your duty you know to live the american dream you have to you know get married love your husband vacuum the floor every day take your take your happy pills so that you don't mind having to take care of the kids all the time um and you know do barbecues on the weekends with your neighbors like because it all seems so natural now because it's how we all grew up but that's even like the front yard versus the backyard like being like engineered that way like of course that's true it makes so much sense but I never yeah really thought about it yeah weird Uh, I lived in kind of a middle class, like upper middle class neighborhood in Billings, Montana, several years ago. Um, And it was kind of like like what Montana would call a suburb. And it was like the front yards, nobody had fences in their front yards. It was like one big green front yard and everybody kept their yard, their grass, like the same distance. And we all like would be out in the front yard and we'd wave at our neighbors and whatever. Oh my God. And then the backyard had fences and we knew like that was like the family space. And so like the kids were playing, you know, and so it was very, very much that. And it actually like totally gives me the creeps thinking about like (laughs) how it's made to be that way to this day. And it feels good. It feels secure right right but uh, ultimately like, like we were not happy there at all we lasted a year there in Billings it's a um was not the place for us to live and we moved back to Missoula Montana where everything is like uh, yeah um <laughs> I don't live in a suburb but <laughs> Missoula but, if, if you're not from Montana you might not know but Missoula is where all the weirdos live we're yeah <laughs> we're a liberal and uh free-thinking bastion in the state of montana <laughs> yeah um not to say that there are not you know middle class like very normal white heteronormative suburbs here because there are but there's also a lot of people who don't live that way here mm-hmm. um god this is totally a theory please 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 don't take me very seriously people but like the nuclear family, as it has been forced on us, is the source of massive isolation in America. Like, oh, absolutely. I I think that um, there's like there's a lot of mental health issues going on in America today. I think that there always have been, you know. And I'm not saying that the nuclear family is responsible for mental health problems, but I am saying that when you take a group of social animals like human beings and separate them into these little units of, you know, three to five people and a dog and put a fence around it and tell them that like all of your personal stuff is supposed to stay in this space. That it is a massive break from the way that like we evolved to, to be as like communal group animals. Like we're supposed to have access to a much larger support network than just our parents. And if our parents are messes, which they universally are because everybody's a mess, we're kind of stuck in that space. And I just, I feel like 
in that way, the suburban nuclear family, you must get married and have babies in this way. That model, I wouldn't say it's a total failure, but but it's definitely, okay. I don't think, the healthiest model that there is. Well, it was not originally set up for white people. That model oh. was originally set up for Native Americans. Oh, uh, right. Oh, my God. You're right. Through <gasps> the Dawes Act, when everybody was allotted land, mm-hmm. uh, they were told that they were to live in this house with only your, like, wife and your children and they were trying to separate the relationships uh and the multi-generational family systems that natives had by putting everybody on this plot of land and with this specific group and saying that this is what it this is what you need to do to be an american we're gonna give you this land and this is where you stay you don't go anywhere but there but then somehow that same idea evolved to suburbs People in the suburbs, you have been colonized yeah. by Indian policy. Like, huh. for natives, it was actually enforced that we had to stay in our own homes. We couldn't have multiple, like, generations living in a home. And mm. that actually, that idea still exists today. I was denied a house uh, when I was trying to find a place to rent uh, when I started a job in another part of the state. I I went to go see this house and talk to this guy about renting it. And he told me that he doesn't rent houses to Indians because they have all of their families live with them. Like they have their whole family live with them. He told me that's why he didn't, doesn't rent to Indians or natives. He said Indians. Because because your grandmother lives with you and that is bad. Right. He was, (laughs) and this is, and this guy was an immigrant to America. He like was a first generation immigrant to the United States. I mean, that's true all over the world. Lots of people have multiple generations living in a house all over the place. What? What? He would not rent to me. Not only that, he also pulled James aside, who is non-native. He's white. Uh, Like organic, like from the center of America, like... (laughs) (laughs) so American white yeah and he pulled him aside and was like how did you end up with her like he was trying to like ask James how he ended up with me like as his wife uh which is really messed up oh my god uh but the thing is that extended Native Americans what we have in common is that they include not only our spouses uh and their children and also grandparents and siblings of parents who we still call grandma and grandpa uh, people not related by blood. We call our cousins mm-hmm. brothers and sisters, you know. Uh, and also our cultural families are bonded through clans and ceremonies and cultural adoption and not through marriage right. uh, like other cultures. And so Americans have this interdependence within their network as opposed to the independence from networks as tends to be encouraged with mm-hmm. respect to like Anglo-American nuclear family organizations. Yeah. And so we like to think of ourselves not only as individual people, but also representative of the entire family, community, and environment. And so even today, marriage is less of a concept than family, as I see it, like Mm. among my relationships with my tribe and my family and my friends um, who are are native. Yeah. And I totally like controlling that 
community, like that communal experience of life in Native communities seems to me like obviously it's a means of control. If you can't hang out with your grandparents, they can't teach you their language. And then they can't, and they can't teach you all of their ceremonies. And, you know, Mm -hmm. if you keep separating people, eventually those things will be lost. And that seems to me like clearly at least a large part of the goal of the Dawes Act, right? Just yes, separate everyone Uh, and defeat them that way. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, And so it's very interesting that when, when did you say the Dawes Act went into effect? It was like 18... Mid 1800s. Okay. So... I, I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask, because I know that a large part of the quote unquote Indian problem, as they called it, um, was it like you <laughs> that the native population was really, really hard to get rid of. <laughs> and um, that was the problem in and of itself. But so, um, 1887, 1887. OK, so that's that's pretty late, honestly. Yeah, but like clearly. It seems to me that between 1887 and say 1945, six, seven, whatever, mm-hmm. um, they were like the powers that be were like, "Hey, you remember that time that we told all the Native American people that they had to live separately, and then we were more able to control them than we had been before? Hey, you know what we want to do? We want to control the rest of the population." Let's tell them that they have to, if they want to be real Americans, they've got to do this too. Like it's, it's a means of control. Yes. Um, so like I said, like marriage is a means of brainwashing you people. That's the message. <laughs> kind of though, but kind of, I mean, but like everything is, and that's kind of like why we started this is to like talk about stuff like this. But like I said, um, in indigenous relationship models where personal accomplishments tend to make them feel like they're more like in enhancing their group instead of feeling like a better individual than the next person. Like mm. even though like there's the concept of like the, the household uh, keeping up with the Joneses or whatever. Mm. So like coming from like that background, I personally noticed the emphasis on nuclear family model most efficiently geared toward like earning and the consumption of goods, mm-hmm. but it also pushed codependence as the wife and children were solely yeah. focused on having like a single breadwinner. Right. And so this in turn put a power structure into place, like exactly what you were just saying, where um, it didn't like put a power structure in place. It was created so that there was this power and structure, but in oh. place. So like, the U.S. is like, this is how we're going to control people. But then also you have like the breadwinner, the mom, the kids, the dog, you know. Right. And so um, it created, to me, it created systems where it was seen as a privilege for women to work. Ju- that, and right. that kind of justified like lower, the lower wages because you, we don't have to pay them mm. as much because it's such a privilege for women to be able to work in. Oh, right. Yeah. And they're doing it. They're clearly doing it because they want to, because if they're married, they have a man who could be providing for them. So right. you know, if, if they're doing the American thing and getting married, then working is just something that they want to do, not that they need to do. Yep. And it also... <gasps> as I see it created the the power systems for the patriarchy to hold onto their power by legal force through right. marriage. Uh, so much so that divorce is seen as a betrayal, not only to the family, 
but as to the country by those who continue to uphold it well to me uh i see divorce as proof that the nuclear family is a huge failure to the part of the i see like the numbers that it's happening (laughs) so you agree with me all right i'm not i'm not totally out of (laughs) <laughs> the realm of reality here but no, um, I totally got remarried but I don't necessarily agree with marriage itself <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk more about that or is that like a little too far for the podcast no um we're talking about marriage and we're, and I see marriage as a power structure so this is why I have a problem with it and so I see that like this power structure has helped to normalize violence as a part of marriage until mm. recently. Yeah. Like spousal rape wasn't even outlawed until the 1990s. Yeah, it wasn't even recognized as a thing. Yeah. And and even after that, the courts declined to try cases, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because of four reasons that I was able to find like across several different like places that I looked into it. But like, first off, the courts didn't want to disturb families by dragging them through court. Right. Yeah. Cause having a family where uh, one parent is raping the other parent all the time is not disruptive at all. That's I know. Fine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, also, it's not okay to air your family business to begin with. And you right. actually touched on this earlier and it was so hard for me to like, wait until I get to this point to say it. Because, <laughs> uh, these this it, like even the way that the houses are set up like I said are structured in a way that you're supposed to like keep your family business like within like these boundaries and once you're outside of those boundaries then you're no longer supposed to like talk about what's going on right and so uh and then also like mostly women but like everyone was taught that spouses were supposed to forgive and forget and so we're like actually indoctrinated since birth to look over men, like to overlook men's bad behavior. Like we are taught mm-hmm. to do that. And so they actually, the fourth reason was that beating your wife was not, not just seen as too trivial to be worth processing, which it was, or prosecuting, mm-hmm. which it was, it was seen as too trivial by a lot of people, but also it was so common that if they had prosecuted every single case of a woman getting beaten by her husband, the courts would have been overwhelmed. Yeah, I'm sure. And so the reason why that that bothers me as an indigenous woman is because we have so many issues with MMIW and Mm -hmm. with violence against women. One in every three women has been sexually abused or um, assaulted. And um, most of these cases happen um you know by people who they know and so yeah well I mean there's god there there we could totally go down the route of like looking at the ways in which indigenous cultures have just been gutted you know and like the 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 things that have been forced upon indigenous cultures by colonizers you know like this you have to be in a nuclear family now you need to be living you know by yourself in a house with this person that you're married to um Mm -hmm. there's like there's there's less recourse there's less there's less resources available to you if something goes wrong and for you know groups of people who have been living a different way for a long time and then it was literally just like stolen 
Like, you know, right. we're just like, going to pretend that none of that ever happened. Here's how you live now. Right. Like, our relationships structures were stolen from us. And then not only that, they base the entire like American system of relationship structures on that abuse. And yeah. so um, I have a statistic about okay. like how uh, about violence in marriages. Um, they actually call like the worst kind of abuse severe violence okay. uh, when it really should be called attempted murder. Huh. Yeah, for some reason which is BS because uh, this is entirely BS because something like 55% of all female homicide victims are killed by current and former partners. Yeah. Every time a woman is killed, they immediately look at the boyfriend, the husband, right. or the ex. As exactly. The, first, the prime suspect until proven innocent. Yeah. And it's messed up that being murdered by a spouse isn't an irrational fear here in America. Mm-hmm. We actually lost more women to murder by their partners between 2001 and 2012 than we did uh, soldiers to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Holy shit, really? Mm-hmm. We lost wow. uh, 6,488 people in those years to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We lost uh 10,470 women. Oh, that's a lot more. Murders by spouses during that same time frame. And those are the ones that we know about. And those are the ones that we know about. Absolutely. And, and also remember like that is like, we don't like, there's a lot of like people of color and especially indigenous women who those cases are never ever reported even if they're reported to authorities the authorities don't report them to like major sites and so they they don't count in a lot Mm -hmm. of cases because that specific area if they counted it would bring the numbers up for the entire state like a lot so they like don't count that number or that or that so oh lord that's a whole jesus i didn't know that that's fucked up yeah, that's, I mean, it like he, was like that. I don't know if it's like that now because I know that like there have been a lot of the laws passed to try and yeah. like get more of these right. um, numbers and research and finding people who were abusers and killers and stuff like that. So, yeah, good, good. I hope that those numbers and uh, that that idea is changing. But, um, you know, one of the issues that I know faces that a lot of people who live on reservations particularly face is that they are very far removed, like physically Mm -hmm. from the quote unquote outside world. And so it can be really hard for even when laws change for those changes to quote unquote, like trickle down to people who are actually living on reservations when they're very, very far away from, you know, all of the resources that might be able to enforce said laws. Right. And again, our like familial bonds are used against us in a lot of these cases where they're like, um, use like the bonds of people who love each other to like make, either don't make the reports, file any reports at all, or to make the, make the reports go away in different ways. So uh, including like people discounting what happened or like downplaying it to the point where it doesn't seem like it's big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think like a lot of that when it is, when we're talking about sort of the relationship between 
spouses. A lot of the time, I think when there is like especially violent abuse happening, um, it goes back a little bit to that idea that we have been, I don't know, fed from everywhere that as women, it is our responsibility to make a man happy, you know, to like take oh, yeah, his totally. pain. Um, and it really, it creates a situation that's just ripe for abuse of all kinds. Um, oh, totally. Emotional and physical and otherwise, you know, like keep him happy, make him happy because I'm, as his spouse, literally the only person that he has. So I must keep him happy. And, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with a spouse who is, um, you know, disturbed or violent or sociopathic or any number of things, if you are the one person that he is supposed to be able to rely on for his happiness, it gets very complicated in, um, it can get very complicated in like, you know, what do you do? Is it really your fault? Right. Probably. If he's not happy and you're the one who's supposed to make him happy, well, what does that say? And I think that a lot of abuse, you know, there are a lot of reasons that a lot of abuse goes unreported, but that very basic idea feels like kind of the bedrock that a lot of it can grow upon. Absolutely. And we talked about this before, like there is a triangular structure here that's always in place. And that's like one part is power, one part is money, and one part is sex. Right. And so there's definitely like um, a control over like money and sex that that position of power is kind of trying, like fighting to keep yeah. Um, this. And that it's not just in the nuclear family itself, but when we look at politics and we see this, like, we see this pyramid in politics where the people in power are trying to control the sex, specifically women's bodies, mm -hmm. and control the, um, the money that's going into these households, um, which leads to demonizing single mothers, or right. uh, I have a case where one of my kids has no dad. And the reason for that is because uh, I was still married. I got a, a res divorce, which is super cheap, but it takes several years to happen. So oh, interesting. Uh, okay. it took me three years. It took like three years of waiting for the court to get to my case to like oh, okay. roll it as a divorce because it was uh, through like the tribal court system. Oh, and I didn't know that. So I was still married to my ex-husband when I had my son and now, mm. and I wouldn't put my ex-husband's name on there as my son's father because my ex-husband was not the father. Right. And um, yeah, so now I have one of my six children has no father at all on his birth certificate because they would not put my husband's name on the birth certificate as the dad. So oh I was married to a different man whoa that's so uh, weird like how why why wouldn't they do it like is it is it like a legal situation or they were a, just like creeped out or no it's a legal situation oh if you God. are married in the state of montana i don't know if this is the case in other states but in the state of montana if you are still married to someone and you have a child by another person you cannot put that other person's name on the birth certificate it is legal legally <laughs> Like, because you're married. What? Uh, this is other, blowing my mind right now. <laughs> yeah. 
the other thing is, is that because I wouldn't have even had any more children after my first marriage at all, but I went to go get my tubes tied. And because I was still married to my ex-husband, they would not do tie my tubes. And your reproductive capacity belonged to him. Exactly. And I refused for that to be the case. I was like, no, I'm not going to go to him and have him sign this paperwork so that I could get my tubes tied. I'm getting this done because I want it done. He doesn't have anything to do with this. He hasn't even been in my life for years. So I I have two more kids now after. (laughs) (laughs) I am enraged about that state of affairs because like, so what we've been talking about so far is like the more or less the, the recent history of marriage in America, which is super rich territory. Mm-hmm. But it occurs to me that like the push toward the nuclear family and the suburbs and everything that we've been talking about, which, you know, informs so much of our understanding today of marriage was a result of like a lot of changes that had happened in the few decades before that, where women got the right to vote. Um, mm-hmm. Then, you know, during the years after that, and especially during World War II, women went into the workforce, like mm-hmm. in droves. And so when the dudes came back, the women were expected to just give up their jobs to their husbands yep. because, you know, that's the right thing to do. And that was met with some resistance. A lot of women were like, oh, uh, no, like we need something to do with our lives. And so it occurs to me that like the push toward nuclear marriage and making it your patriotic duty in the post-war years to get married and have children and vacuum the floor while your husband went off to work is very much a concerted effort to take some of the power that women had started to seize about their lives and like redirect it oh no don't go to work and exercise your right to vote and have your own life vacuum the floors instead take a benny it'll be fine (laughs) so 100 percent, everything you just said and again i'm going to back you up Yes, I love this arrangement. (laughs) (laughs) In Public Vows, a story of marriage and nation, Nancy Ka argues um, with respect to the U.S. and the Christian model of lifelong monogamous marriage Mm -hmm. wasn't a dominant worldview in the 19th century. And like to expect like all these women to come out of post-World War II era where they had been working and stuff and go into like this household where they were just going to have babies and clean the house all day uh, was going to take a lot of work to make monogamous marriage seem like a foregone conclusion. (laughs) To make it seem desirable in the first place. (laughs) Right. And people had to choose to make marriage the foundation for the new nation, which is also why, um, Catholicism is so important to like also this nuclear family system because the like like the Catholic Church actually helped create this system and keep it in oh, place. Yeah, I mean the Catholic Church and marriage—that's like the whole that's like the whole backstory behind all of this and how we got to this point in the first place. Right. Uh, by by treating women's bodies like objects. And, yeah. And trying to civilize indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And it's all, I mean, it all comes back to means of control. Like, and I, I, I always end up like when I think about this stuff, looking like into the really far past and looking at like evolution and stuff to try to grasp 
like the very basic ideas behind these truths that we now live with as if they are objective truths, but usually are not. <laughs> like, like the fact that, you know, women are supposed to be subservient to men and that therefore that's why there were all these religious rules and then secular laws made up on the idea that women literally were owned by men. Like up until, I don't know, like probably around 1920 in America, women could not own property individually. They could not vote. They were not supposed to work out of the house. I mean, many did, but like it wasn't it wasn't a thing that you did, you know, to get your own job and have your own career. Um, and basically, like ownership of your life was transferred from your parents to your husband. You were at no point supposed to have power. Signified. By the passing of your father to your husband in the wedding ceremony itself. Exactly. Oh, and that's something else that I wanted to mention real quickly. Um, you know, the, the, what do you call it? The, the putting the wedding itself, like the wedding ceremony being put on this pedestal as like the ultimate moment, you know, in a woman's life. Um, I was reading not so long ago about how like up until the wedding of Queen Victoria, to Prince Albert, they're really like weddings were not that big of a deal. Like for rich people, they were always, a, you know, a pretty big deal because you got all your rich friends to come and you put on some nice clothes and you had like a meal or whatever. But that was the first like hugely publicized massive wedding in like more or less modern times. And a lot of the things that we do in weddings now in America were popularized by Queen Victoria. She wore a white dress that didn't used to be a mm -hmm. thing. She carried flowers that didn't used to mm -hmm. be a thing. Um, like a whole bunch of the ways that the, that like things that happened at the reception, things that happened during the ceremony, the way that you are supposed to have a wedding, quote unquote, now is very much based on that particular moment in time. And then, you know, Queen yes. Victoria and King Albert went on to change the way that Europeans lived, which then came over to America and is now assumed to be normal um and i think that really like that wedding did a lot to actually elevate the idea of the wedding as this perfect romantic moment as opposed to like yeah you know the way that you transfer power over this woman's reproductive capabilities from one man to another and maybe some money in there as well uh absolutely like queen victoria is the reason it's popular here and it was like throughout the entire world, like mostly like rich cultures, like uh, rich, like families that were having like these big weddings. I was just yeah. reading about like weddings in China uh, not too long ago, like older weddings and how like big of a deal that was there. Like it was definitely like popular for like the upper class families and stuff yeah. to have that that connection but also they have matchmakers there so mm -hmm. <laughs> like who would like match you and so like a lot of like some of the cultures where the wedding was a huge huge deal they did have like weddings that were like between two people who were chosen to be married like not because right. of love again but mm -hmm. because of a uh, relationship like relationships to uh, or um expectations to their families and to the places where that they that they were from yeah family alliances so, 
again, in this case, like even though it was popularized between like Queen Victoria and Edward, it, that even that was, even though it was like this big, huge thing. And now it's a big, huge thing that we totally bought into. And I'm going to talk about that in a sec. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that even that was a like legal, legally binding agreement mm-hmm. between them to like make this marriage happen yeah. as a way to as a like way to fulfill the requirements as like royals oh yeah yeah I guess like it, a lot of the sort of the expectations that are put on marriage as a legal institution as opposed to a romantic institution really can be like you can look at royal families and yeah. that's it's kind of just like everything you need to know is right there. <laughs> this is, yeah. They are not love matches. Uh, yeah. They are... The reason why they the reason why they're a big deal is because you're not just uniting two people, but you're oftentimes uniting two different like territories together mm-hmm. as one. And the territories are coming together to like um accept this like legally binding like new thing that that's these are the people that are going to be like your rulers you're consolidating money and power with sex there's a triangle exactly yes there it is again um i did a little bit of research though we bought into this as americans big time and of (laughs) course we monetized it as we tend to do (laughs) and so today the wedding services industry is a 55.1 billion dollar industry whoa like a year this this year and that's with it taking a big cut because of (gasps) COVID-19 wait wait, in 2020 it made over 55 billion dollars oh my god that's amazing wow yeah so this is a multi-billion dollar industry and they are also doing everything. They're they're spending as much of that 55.1 billion dollars as they can to continue this idea that you need a diamond ring, you need a white dress, you need flowers, you need a caterer, mm-hmm. you need and and profiting like off of it. Off of this yeah. like legal Oh my god. This legal agreement. And it's totally like the entire wedding planning process for heterosexual marriages has it's it's like sort of um you can like condense the entire fucked upness of the power dynamic in marriage by looking at the wedding planning situation because mm-hmm. almost universally the woman in a heterosexual marriage is expected to do all of the work to put the wedding together. Right. And it has been sold as part of the fun. Oh, it's so fun to figure out who's right. going to sit next to whom at what table. Oh, it's so fun. Look, you can go get your pedicure done while you're leafing through, you know, bridal magazines. And isn't that fun? But like, we put this like glamorous facade on the fact that the woman is, again, doing all of the grunt work. <laughs> like, and it's, incredibly stressful if you have ever known anyone oh, yeah, who has totally. planned a wedding like I planned a wedding I had an Alfred Angelo dress I had everything I had the cake I had okay so 
I told you in 2020, it was a $55.1 billion industry, but that was with it taking a hit. In 2019, it was a $72 billion industry with the average wedding costing $32,000. Think about like how old a lot of these people are when they're getting married. Yeah. And the fact that you're basically taking the down payment for a house and putting it into this one day. Yeah. You know, what's weird to think about too, like I, I assume that with people who are way richer than I have ever been, there's probably more of an actual money exchange that still goes on when people get married. Like you might actually have, you know, parents giving their children however much money when they get married. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people work that into their wills or whatever. Um, But, you know, for the rest of us, (laughs) the plebeians down here in the trenches, um, it's wild to think that whereas like especially for the upper classes, marriage used to be a way of passing your money on to your children and grandchildren Mm -hmm. and a way of, you know, paying somebody to take your daughter off your hands. Um, Instead of like making that giant monetary gift, now a lot of parents put a lot of money into their children's weddings. Mm -hmm. So like, it's not actually going anywhere. That money isn't actually doing anything for you in the future, but it's still continuing that like, let me dump a whole bunch of money into this tradition, which is very weird. Like, right. Cause why? And, and it is, it's super weird. And I watched a wedding movie the other day and totally caught myself fantasizing about like, I have an adult daughter and like what her wedding's going to look like. And I'm like, wait, no, wait, no, I don't believe in this. Like, Oh my God. But Lenny, it goes right back to Disney. And like this, yeah. the, it's it's the fairy tale ending, right? Like it it has to be beautiful and just like you want it. It has to be an expression of who you are as an individual. There's so much pressure on it, and I really think that it comes back to this idea that like the happy ending of your life is encapsulated in this perfect moment where you're marrying your prince on the bow of a ship as the sun sets or whatever, you know, yeah. <laughs> whatever or, your perfect or someone's thing is. prince. Yeah. <laughs> if you're Vanessa, someone's prince. <laughs> <laughs> like it it has been like the idea of getting married has been marketed to women at for at least the last 70 years. And I think probably even before that, you know, to like maybe a lesser degree to the mainstream, mm-hmm. but like it has been marketed to us as the thing that will make us whole. Mm-hmm. Therefore, the wedding must be perfect because yes because reasons that don't actually make sense if you think them through um well because that's how you legitimize your relationship no matter how good or bad it is okay and can we talk for a moment (laughs) this is something like I was literally working on something completely different the other day and this idea just popped into my head and I hadn't really thought of it in this exact way before so for women getting married is the thing that you do. And a lot of the reason for that, I believe, is because for women and women only, for hundreds of years in the dominant culture that came to us from Europe, which more or less came from Rome way back in the day, the dominant culture has been telling women that the only way that you get to have sex is if you are married. Mm -hmm. Because... As we have more or less established, and we could probably do an entire episode on specifically, um, you know, marriage is the way that men have gained control over women's ability to make babies. 
Right. Um, then I believe that very strongly. That's the only reason that it exists, that we we pair women off with men so that he that man can then control their reproductive ability. Um, Although but, the best description for why men prefer to marry virgins, what we do in the shadows, he's like, well, why do you prefer virgins? Well, if somebody gave you a sandwich, wouldn't you prefer that he hadn't fucked it first? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. I I mean, I see that point. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Which, you know, it's, it's hilarious. But like the idea of virginity yeah totally what you said it comes down to control and it comes down to um it it became a just another way to be shitty to women (laughs) kill them to get rid of them to you know justify like not loving them you know things like it really is such a weird thing though like so Okay, controlling controlling women's ability to make babies by mm-hmm. telling them that they cannot have sex until marriage, which really only applies to women and only ever has applied to women because men have always been expected to have sex before marriage and to have extramarital sex during marriage. Like, it's just, that's how it's always been. We control women's <laughs> bodies through marriage with the idea that it's a legitimacy thing, right? Like, that you have to own this woman's body through marriage so that you know that the children that she bears are yours and the question that i have is like why is that so important like is it really necessary that a child bear your blood for you to give that child your attention and eventually your money and your resources there's so much emphasis placed on the like the bloodline thing right like you you have to know that this is your child or else you won't love it you know, or you won't take care of it, or you can't pass on your whatever, your old pocket watch, you know, to someone who's not really your child. Yeah. And like that. Yeah. Yeah. You can't pass on (laughs) some random child. Um, But like, I really, I, I feel like I can see an argument for that line of thinking in that, like, there may be some some very deep evolutionary like tendency to love our own children more than other other people's children maybe but i really kind of feel like it's it's at least in practice the idea that like the children must be yours to be legitimate and therefore to receive whatever be a member of the family feels very much more like just another like just controlling a woman's body like just it being is. able to be like you can't let anybody else put his pp in there i mean like i said i have a i have a son that doesn't have a father now it's just mine he's my immaculate conception uh (laughs) jokes on you the courts you made me into a madonna that's pretty awesome but but the point was to control me right to control like to make sure that i wasn't going to have any children with another man other than my husband like that's what it came down to is controlling me And I really do believe that a lot of the ways that Western culture has developed is basically a reaction to cisgender men being terrified 
of women's ability to make babies inside of themselves and feeling like yep. they must do anything and everything that they possibly can to control that. And I right. feel like most of like most of history, especially from the Roman Republic onward through Europe and now into America, like that culture is based on women like being subjugated because men are deeply jealous and afraid of what yeah. we can do with our bodies. I mean, if we don't need men to help us make babies, if we could just like be off making babies, all the power leaves men and it's chaos. Yeah, total chaos. Cause we couldn't, we couldn't possibly just exist in any kind of egalitarian situation. Obviously <laughs> it's never been done. It has never happened in the history of all humanity ever. Um, yeah, definitely not in America before, you know, colonists came over. Totally, sure. totally not. But no, like, I, I've thought about it a lot. And, you know, granted, I am, like, a raging rampant feminist, um, and I'm queer. And, you know, we haven't even gone into, like, non-heterosexual marriage and that whole thing. I'm just, I'm going to take, like, a very little detour, because we definitely don't have time to really dig into it right now. But those, one of the other questions that I wrote in my notes going into this episode was, you know, gay marriage slash marriage equality. And the question is, for real though, why not? Like what, what is, what is the problem? Is it just that if, if we let people who aren't cisgender men and cisgender women get married, that they won't have babies and then therefore we won't be able to outbreed our competitors? Is it just that we're like really squicked out by that? Like, both of those reasons have been an argument for it. What it comes down to is when we've attributed social status and power to this specific uh, heteronormative coupledom is what I called it earlier. Everything is like based off of this. Like that's where, that's one of the ways that people are able to keep their power. Nobody wants mm -hmm. to give up power. Uh, it, it gives them power over the women who are left reckoning with the fact that their social status, their human value, and their basic survival is like contingent on men right. men are afraid to be able to lose control over that like is yeah. what it comes down to and yeah. if you allow same-sex marriages you are like breaking this idea that this specific type of marriage works even though statistics say that this type of marriage doesn't work right yeah. Well, yeah, actually, I, that's a really good point. Like, if we go back to the idea that, like, the nuclear family is an idea that was really, like, forced into reality, you know, yeah. and enforced as the way to control the masses in social order, then I and guess with, queer marriages, they go, they go directly against that. And I right. also, like, yeah, like, two women having a happy life together, which, by the way, has happened all the time in every yeah. society ever, like just without yeah. the blessing of marriage in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. um, without the sacraments of marriage, as they say, mm -hmm. um, that shows that women can be happy and productive and healthy members of society on their own. And that disrupts everything. Like, I've thought about this quite a lot as um, somebody who is in my mid to late thirties at this point, <laughs> who has not had children yet. Um, and doesn't plan to have children, I have seen the ways that friends of mine who have known for a long time, when they had children, 
became better consumers mm-hmm. because like, whereas, you know, I am, I am living with a partner in a heteronormative looking, but not in reality uh, relationship, but because it's just the two of us and our cat, like we don't, we didn't get a new car. We have a crappy old car that could break down at any time because we're not putting anybody but ourselves in danger by driving it. You know, like we we are not willing to go into debt to get ourselves a fancy new car like a lot of people might be when they have mm-hmm. children. I, I started realizing like the differences between my life and a lot of the people who I know who have children's lives is that they were, again, sweeping generalization. I know this is not true of everybody, but many of them were much more willing to adopt the nuclear family, you know, 1.5 children and a dog, white picket fence life because it did feel secure and it did feel like they were providing the best life for their children in a way that they would not necessarily have done if it was just them. And this, people go into debt for it, you know, so they can have the safe car, they can send their kid to the right school, they can do all Mm -hmm. of the right things that you do when you have a child who you love, who you want to provide these things for. Um, And I think that queer marriages and queer relationships really are upsetting to the consumerist social order in that way, which isn't to say that queer people can't have kids because lots of them do now. And that's like getting more and more prevalent in our culture. Or don't pay thousands of dollars for weddings. (laughs) True. That's not spending the equivalent of like five houses on a wedding over the course of our lives. Like, yeah, it really like, you know, you you can save a lot of money by not having kids. And a lot of people who are in queer relationships don't end up having kids unless they really decide to and make a commitment to it. And I think that no, that is... is that true? <laughs> well, I think it's <laughs> not as true now as it used to be. Um, I mean, I'm still like, driving around my crap car, even though I have children. <laughs> I said because it was a sweeping generalization. <laughs> because I don't want to. Because I don't want to put myself into debt buying a car. I don't want to make payments on crap. And so I buy crap. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Like, yeah, as cheap as I could get it. uh, Because I have kids and because they are expensive. And because it's exactly what you said. But we are now like needing to consume all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. I mean, we live in a giant two-story house in the middle of the city here I mean the electricity payments on this house are $250 a month wow uh just because we have kids like I'm willing to pay that people are willing to pay so much more for things just because they have children and you're absolutely right there Um, yeah and that's not a bad thing I mean like you love your children you want to take the best care of your children that's great like I am in it's no not a way impugning anyone who does that. But it's but still the killing time. the environment. Like every cell phone, every tablet, every computer, every TV that you own, not only like affects indigenous people specifically. And I think about this like every time, like I have to buy like a laptop so my kids could go to online school, you know, things like yeah. that. That these purchases not only affect indigenous people right now in this day and age specifically, And, but they're like contributing to like the killing of the entire earth. And so when we're looking at like marriages as being like made as a source for consumerism, Mm -hmm. 
it's like a direct evil for like killing the earth like marriage specifically that's the moral of the story you're killing the earth when you get married decolonize marriage (laughs) seriously though like i mean it's it's a very big very integral part of a much larger puzzle of how do we control people and i do believe that like currently in today's in today's society like mm-hmm. a giant means of control is keeping keeping people relatively happy and distracted by mm-hmm. giving them stuff to buy which is an economic engine yeah. which drives capitalism which is the heart mm-hmm. of the empire that has colonialized the earth and so here we are and you know a lot of us want to have like a beautiful fairy tale wedding and there's nothing inherently wrong with that but it is a piece of a much larger puzzle and that's what we are here to tell you all about and to make you feel bad for all of your decisions people <laughs> yeah so now that we introed it the rest of our episode is going to be going deeper into these topics and so settle in because we're about to get into it and I'm you know yeah I feel like we could really I'm take- just kidding <laughs> I, I feel like we could honestly take like any of the smaller bits that we've been discussing and do a whole episode on them because um, oh yeah totally there's uh, we could so do it on here. the wedding industry we could do it on but I mean this is a sex podcast <laughs> so we're talking oh. specifically about we didn't talk much about <laughs> sex here oops uh, but we did though I mean marriage like I said is tied to sex controlling the opposite sex controlling you know and so all of this is tied to like and these ideas are important to understand when we're looking at a bunch of the other topics that we have coming up so yeah but you know like I I want to say again anyone listening who wants to get married for you know good reasons that are healthy for you and you want to have like a giant awesome wedding like I mean do it like do you by all means we're not trying to make you live life the way that we approve of but it is important to invite me (laughs) to your gay damn the man wedding I want to go to that I want to I if I ever do have a wedding I want it to just be an awesome party like I don't want I don't have any desire to get married just to be married so my basic like my bottom line when it comes to getting married is I don't want to do it unless I am in a position where I can throw a bomb ass party for as many people <laughs> as I can. And right now, I and actually for my entire adult life so far, I've been way too poor to throw that wedding. <laughs> so it hasn't happened and I'm fine with that. Um, no, it, like, it will. This podcast is going to make us so rich and we'll oh have a big polycule wedding. We're going to get so rich by tearing apart the patriarchy and capitalism and people's dreams. It's going to be great. I can't wait. (laughs) American dream. Tearing apart the American dream. Seriously, people buy our merch if we have any when you hear this. (laughs) At this moment in time, we do not. But maybe by the time you hear this podcast, we will. Yeah. So buy our merch. Because as much as we like to rag on capitalism... We still do live in a capitalist system and we do need money to survive. So thanks. <laughs> so what are yeah. we going to talk about next time? Oh, womanhood. Concepts of womanhood. femininity and womanhood. Oh boy, okay. we can just keep having this conversation basically and just get into the womanhood part of it. Yeah, it's almost like we planned it to flow seamlessly into the next episode, which we didn't. <laughs> which we would never do. Because <laughs> we like to make things hard. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. Well, yeah. Come back next time where we're going to talk about womanhood and femininity and what the hell that means to us and in America right now and in the past and in other cultures if, you know, we have time to talk about all that stuff. So thank you for listening to Ourgasm, the podcast where we talk about decolonizing sex sexuality. I always say sex and then I mean to say sexuality. And so I'm like, sexuality. <laughs> And gender, I am Lindsay G. And I am Lenny P. And we'll talk to you next time. Ciao. Yep. Bye. Bye. Let our love be a flame, not an amber. Say it's me that you want to dismember. Blacken my eye, set fire to my tie as we dance to the masochism tango. At your command, before you here I stand, my heart is in my hand. Ugh, it's here that I must be. My heart entreats, just hear those savage beats, and go put on your cleats, and come and trample me. Your heart is hard as stone or mahogany. That's why I'm in such exquisite agony. My soul is on fire. It's a flame with desire, which is why I perspire when we tango. You caught my nose in your left castanet, love. I can feel the pain yet, love. Every time I hear drums And I envy the rose That you held in your teeth, love With the thorns underneath, love Sticking into your gums Your eyes cast a spell that bewitches the last time I needed 20 stitches To sew up the gash that you made with your lash As we dance to the masochism tango Bash in my brain and make me scream with pain Then kick me once again and say we'll never part I know too well I'm underneath your spell So darling if you smell something burning it's my heart Excuse me. Take your cigarette from its holder and burn your initials in my shoulder. Fracture my spine and swear that you're mine as we dance to the massacre. Kiss them,